0: 84% approximately of um, activity on a mobile phone happens in apps, not on the web. So, And actually, it happens in like five apps. It happens, and those five apps kind of differ by audience. But but let's rewind that for a second, right? So if the vast majority of online activity is happening on mobile phones, and the vast majority of that activity is happening in apps, what does that mean for SEO? What does that mean for Google? And what will it mean in five years?
1: You are listening to Louder Than Words, the podcast inspiring creatives of all types by giving you a glimpse into the lives and creative process of the most remarkable people you know. I'm John Benini, and I'm your host. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Louder Than Words, where I have the great fortune of being able to hang out with some of the most brilliant people in business. My name is John Benini. I'm a head of growth at Litmus and also a conversion copywriter. Um, but today, more importantly and more interestingly, I'm here with Megan Keeney Anderson, who is currently VP of marketing at HubSpot, where she's been for since roughly, and I'll let her correct me if this is wrong, 2011, where she was working for a company before that called Performable, which was then acquired by HubSpot where she's been ever since. And um, yeah, we've been trying to get Megan on for some time now. So Megan, thanks so much for coming on Louder Than Words today. It's great to have you.
0: Yeah, no, thanks so much for having me on. It's awesome. And you nailed it. Yeah, I've been here about five years. uh, And it was 2011 that Performable was acquired.
1: Awesome. And I don't know if you you remember this, but uh, you and I had a conversation probably... A little over a year ago, I was at the HubSpot offices. I was still in agency world, uh, working for a HubSpot VAR. And I told you about this podcast and how I wanted it to resemble uh, The Great Discontent, the blog. And yeah. you were like, oh, that's a great idea. Let me know someday. Uh, I'll be on there. So here we are. You're uh, a little over a year later, and I finally have you on. So uh, yeah, it's come full circle, I guess. After this one, I could quit.
0: Yeah, when actually <laughs> if you look back at the guests that you've had on this podcast, you you've hit it. I mean, I think... I some of the episodes that I've heard, and if you're listening, you should definitely go back and listen to some of those other great ones. Um, you had uh, uh, Cleon on there. Um, you had like a bunch of different people that were all right at that caliber of, you know, the the great discontent. So now I sort of feel I wish i had gotten in on the early side because now I feel sort of bashful <laughs> next to all those people. Uh,
1: but
0: yeah, great list. Austin,
1: Austin. Cleon was uh, he was probably the only one that i recorded for myself i i went way over an hour and i didn't care (laughs) i didn't care like how how it would because he was really the person that i had in mind when i first started it and i was like if i could ever get austin cleon on that will be like that and i even told him that in the intro um and so yeah that was a lot of fun but yeah i appreciate the kind words but uh it's awesome to finally have you on um so i guess we'll start here uh could you I know I briefly touched on you know your your pre-Hubspot days at Performable but um could you briefly describe sort of the path that's led you to what you're doing today at Hubspot
0: Yeah definitely so I I've been really lucky in my career I left school and after graduating and decided that I wanted two things in my job I wanted to have a job that was really writing intensive I loved writing my whole undergraduate and you know, elementary career had been really focused on writing. So I knew that 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 was essential. And I also wanted to have a job where the people I worked with, my colleagues would be so passionate about the work um, and the thing that they were writing about that they'd just be throwing themselves at it. And so I looked for the intersection of those two things when I was looking for my first job. And where that landed me was as a copywriter um, for a, a nonprofit called United Way. And so I spent my first five years there. Uh, And the nice thing about working for a nonprofit is that if you want to wear a bunch of different hats, you can, because usually they're strapped for resources and understaffed. And so although I started as a copywriter, I quickly evolved into, you know, starting their first social media strategy. Um, You know, when the website needed redesigning, I kind of figured out how to move it from a Dreamweaver site to, uh, CMS, I think we moved it to Drupal at the time, taught myself all that on the job. And so having that experience of being under, under resourced allowed me to kind of like learn a lot in my first, uh, role. And the way that I taught myself those things, especially like the tech side of marketing was through the, the, blogs of tech startups. So I read HubSpot's blog religiously. I came across a blog, um, from a guy called David Cancel who was running this, um, new startup called Performable and uh, really loved that. And so when I saw that they had an opening, I had a glass of wine at 10 o'clock at night and I sent in an email application and tried to get my foot in the door with no tech experience whatsoever. Uh, And so they called me up the following couple of days and that's how I got into Performable. I I always credit uh, Dave Kanzler who ran ran that company for, you know, he's fond of saying that he likes to hire the person, not the skill set. And so, you know, it was hopefully, you know, my, my person and my drive that got me into that role because it certainly at that point probably wasn't my tech skill set. Uh, so I got into Performable, was their sole marketer for a while, helped them to kind of figure out the, the lead generation strategy. And then not long after I got there, I want to say about five or six months after I got there, uh, was the acquisition. And so HubSpot, it was uh, their very first big acquisition, really their first acquisition at all. Um, and we then folded into the HubSpot community and i spent the last five years here d- furthering my career, learning more, uh, into getting to the point where I am today as, uh, one of the VPs of marketing here.
1: And performable was pretty small, right? Headcount wise.
0: Yeah, I think we were we were somewhere between 10 and 15.
1: So, uh, what was it like? So you're, you know, you're 10 to 15 people and, uh, I was actually talking to one of the guys at Drift who was also at Performable with you and and with David at the time. And he said his biggest adjustment was going from you're around these 10 to 15 people every single day. You're working closely with these same 15 people every single day. And then, you know, you get acquired by obviously a bigger organization and then almost overnight, you don't really get to see or work closely with those same people anymore. And so like that's kind of the other side of the acquisition that, Most people don't hear about. So, like, what what was it like going from a small team, you know, uh, you know, especially at a startup like that, tech startup, small team like that? Everybody rallied around, like changing the world, right? And then you get acquired um, by HubSpot. What was like? What was just that whole, like, what was that whole period of time like making that transition?
0: Yeah. Um, So I think that going through an acquisition is probably the single best reminder of how serendipitous and circuitous life can be uh, because your whole scope changes in an instant. Uh, as do the opportunities that you have in front of you, as do the challenges that you have in front of you. So, you know, what you were just talking about, the challenges of suddenly being in a place where you see the the full cohesive picture of the business to going to a place where you see really intensively a frat, you know a section of it. Um, and you really have to like lift your head up to try to see the the full picture, so you don't get too mired down in um, the day to day. I think that's that's a fair challenge in going through a acquisition from a small company to a big one. But on the flip side of that, you know, I think that for for me, like I went from being the only marketer uh, and having to really scrape and scramble for every thing that I learned, and to really only be able to, try, to follow my own instincts on that to being on a team of what I genuinely think are some of the best marketers on the planet and suddenly being able to learn from them every single day. And that has maintained from the day I started at HubSpot all the way up to, to you know, today, this, this morning, learning new things all the time. And I think the, the pace of learning, uh, at a bigger company can, can really sort of, um, to can grow exponentially. I think I, I've I've learned faster and in a different way here than I necessarily would on my own. Um, now you learn a lot in a startup too. Uh, it's just a different type of learning because you're you're scraping and and kind of like trying to fight for every thing you figure out.
1: Yeah, but I feel like that is essential to that going through that and doing things in an unscalable way. And uh, I think that part of it probably prepares you for when you get to a big company like that, you're like, wait a minute, like you guys, this, this is easy stuff. I, I know how to do this. Like you guys, and it's almost like you become, you know, like the curse of knowledge. You think, you know, because you had to scrape along and do those things that it's that hard or uh, for everyone. And it's actually easier when you get to a bigger organization to, you know, utilize resources to get things done. So, um, yeah, yeah. De- definitely. Like, I can see that definitely being a, a big positive change. Um, I guess what was your – because you knew who HubSpot was, obviously. I mean, yeah. you're in the Boston Tech community. Um, even in 2011, everyone knew who HubSpot was. Like what were uh, – I mean, were you excited to to go from, you know, the small team and, and be acquired by HubSpot?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think I was – I use this phrase a lot um, with Kip Bodner, who's the CMO here. Uh, I think I was appropriately nervous. Like I, I was <laughs> – I had like the right kind of first day of school jitters going in me. And I think that um, that kind of it woke me up and enlivened me to, to try to make my mark there as early as possible. Um, but I did. Like I looked up to HubSpot at the time. They had taught me a lot of the things that I knew about marketing. So then the chance to get to to come in and be part of that and learn more, it worked out really well for me. Um, I think the other thing to, to say here is like, I don't think all acquisitions work out well. I think that there are some acquisitions that are misguided from the start. There are some that are well-intended, but they get bobbled along the way. And I got lucky in the fact that like the only acquisition I've ever gone through was handled really well, and it also happened to be the first acquisition that HubSpot had ever done. Um, so when I say handled well, I mean the culture matched pretty well. Uh, they, they had really sussed that out. Um, when I got to HubSpot, uh, I'll be, I'll be completely candid like they did not acquire performable for the marketing talent. like <laughs> it was definitely the engineers and the designers who were phenomenal uh, that that was the real appeal, I think to acquiring uh, performable and wanting to kind of rebuild Hub, the HubSpot product with that staff. Uh, I was just sort of a, a cherry on top. And one of the things that I always admired is, you know my boss at the time sort of we we looked around together at like where are the needs in the organization because you know this isn't a natural way to enter a a company and like what's the thing that i can make the biggest impact on um and that's actually how i got into product marketing but um the nice thing about my boss at the time was we we've both figured out where the needs were but then also like he threw me in over my head right off the bat like we i was doing a website redesign for the hubspot homepage um, Within three weeks of starting the HubSpot, and you know, like
1: so, copy, uh, creative, design, all that stuff.
0: Yeah, and managing you know, that like, yeah. I definitely broke the website for twenty minutes, you know, <laughs> and and having that that first huge project and having that first mess up very early in, and then coming back from that, having uh, and regaining my footing, like that was a really cool experience to have first. So I wasn't just like an afterthought. It was very clear that even though I was unexpected on the team, I was going to make a difference.
1: And, you know, what was it? Because, you know, I, you came to, you know, you obviously had, you know, a few different jobs before you came to HubSpot. And, you know, over the years, you know, especially Dharmesh, it's, you know, the culture at HubSpot has been a huge source of pride. Yeah. Um, you know, he has that, that culture deck that, um I feel like just about everybody in tech has seen or tried to copy in some way unsuccessfully. Um, And, you know, this has been a source of pride and it's not just, it's not just like the candy on the wall, right? It's, it's also just like the attitude and things like that. So it's been this big source of pride, but it's also been like a bit of a a lightning bolt for criticism as well. So as somebody who had jobs prior to HubSpot, so you've seen the way it's worked elsewhere. You weren't right out of school and, and joined HubSpot. Like, what is it like working there?
0: So um, I'm going to say something a little bit hyperbolic, and then I'm going to pay it off, um, which is to say that it really is, it's unlike any place I've ever worked. And, and as you said, I've had other jobs before this. I'm sure I'll have other jobs in the future, but there's something really unique about the culture here, and I've tried to pick it apart in different ways. And the thing that stands out to me the most is there is this like constant focus on learning and betterment that runs through everything here. So for example, um, little things like we have this series called hub talks where we bring in outside experts that range from like the governor of Massachusetts to last week, we had a news editor from Buzzfeed, uh, to a violinist, like really different, uh, different specializations, but, but experts in their field, we have them come in for these lunchtime talks where people can learn from them. We have peer led classes, um, called, I think, Always Be Learning, um, where your peers, whether they're younger than you or older than you, can teach you anything from like coding to public speaking uh, to cooking. Um, there's, a, there's a program called Athena, which is designed to match emerging female leaders with executives for conversations about career development, like how to, how to build um, your reputation and build your career, not only at HubSpot, but beyond. So there's like everywhere you look, there's some sort of education going on in a way that I hadn't experienced since college. And yeah, there's all sorts of other stuff that's in the offices that I think gets a lot of press. But that to me is the the bigger difference here than in other places I've worked. And I've loved everywhere I've worked. I've been really, really lucky. But even you know, even at performable, even at the startup, we were to we were so mired down in like just that month and getting to the next month that, there wasn't this sort of overarching feeling of, okay, how do we look beyond that? And how do we improve our skills and get better? And that's here in a really unique way. So I'm, I'm smarty. I think I'm smarter every day that I'm here.
1: And, and that's, and you've been there a long time. So that says a lot. Um, So, you know, you've been there since 2011. A lot has changed at HubSpot over the years, obviously IPO, you know, just the growth of the company continues to be, you know, impressive. And, you know, you've, gone international offices in, in Dublin and yeah. Australia. So what, I mean, you guys do a lot of things. Like what has worked? Like if you, I mean, for the for the six, seven years, whatever it's been since you've been there, um, what have been the things, because there's a lot of companies that blog, right? There's a lot of companies that, that um, you know, have, you know, very aggressive PR strategies or, you know, they put out premium content and they host conferences and they still don't see the type of growth That that HubSpot sees. So, from your standpoint, like, what has just worked over the years?
0: Yeah. Well, so I think it's been different at different stages of our development as a company. So, what worked early in is not what works today. And usually, we go through these periods of like rapid growth and then a plateau. And in that plateau, we need to figure out what that what's going to jumpstart the next phase of growth. And so, you know, I think in the last year, the thing that has really helped to grow us has been establishing what we call a, a CRO team or a, really shorthand is the, is called the optimization team. And that's a team of, it's almost like a SWAT team of a UX specialist, developers, SEO experts, content experts like Pam Vaughn, who you had on the um, podcast a while ago. Mm-hmm. And their whole job is find places within the whole HubSpot mechanism that you can optimize, whether it's um, you know Pam's historical content optimization, where she goes back and she actually you know finds the content that is ranking really really well but maybe not converting as well, and goes back and does a refresh on that content, modernizes it, bringing brings in new examples and makes that conversion path clearer. Um, and then she does the same thing for content that converts really well but doesn't rank as well. Goes back and does like a real SEO workup on it. Projects like that have done more in the last year to increase or jumpstart our growth than, than almost anything else. So you can roughly say that the PAMS, like one historical optimization project, which didn't take all that much time, although I'm sure she'd fight me on that, uh, it increased our organic traffic by like 46%, that one project alone. Um, by the end of the year, and our leads generated by or- from organic search by like 75% by the end of the year. And those are meaningful, meaningful differences from one project. So that worked, and then we were like, all right, well, what else can you guys do? And so they pick their own projects, and they basically uh, they sleuth out things that aren't working as well as they could, and they find a way to optimize them, and that's been phenomenal. Now, that's perfect for the stage company that we're at. Uh, if you're just getting started, though, I think it's like you got to know your problem. So you've got to know: um, is your problem getting people to your site? Is your problem converting those people? Where is there a leak in your whole, you know, funnel or marketing engine? And then focus all of your early efforts on fixing that leak.
1: Yeah. And that historical optimization strategy, I think, has been used a lot, um, as an example at, at, at many companies about going back and sort of revisiting posts and things like that. Um, so, you know, you've, you've sort of had this really, uh, impressive trajectory at, at helps, you know, you came in as an acquisition who, you know, somebody who said that, you know, they didn't inquire performable for the marketing talent, but you know, you've, you've come in as a product marketing manager to product marketing director. So now you're the VP of marketing. So like, what, what has that whole experience just been like?
0: Yeah, it's been fun. I've had a really good time. Um, I think it's, it's cool because I think you have to recognize when you're ready for the next challenge. Um, and a lot of that comes down to like training yourself to pay attention to the bigger picture, particularly when you're bogged down in what I know for most people is a very busy schedule. But finding a way to look up from your work periodically and thoughtfully enough to see where emerging needs are, see where big changes are happening, not only in the company, but also in the marketplace around you and figure out where you can make a difference. Um, so when we came into, when I came into HubSpot and there wasn't a job opening on the marketing team, uh, the one thing we knew was that with the acquisition of Performable, we were going to, the company was going to be rebuilding the product from scratch. That meant a lot of changes to the product. That meant a lot of communications that we would need to make, uh, to the customer base. And so that's where the product marketing team was born. Now that team evolved and their purpose evolved for uh, a lot over the, the last five years and um, now is led by a guy named Jeff Russo who's who's brilliant at it. Um, my most recent shift, I think, you know, the opportunity there was I started to notice like, and I'm not the, obviously not the only one, but like a, along with a lot of people, I started to notice that we're in one of the most fascinating times Uh, that I've seen in terms of the way people find and consume content, right? So I think that, you know, the last big major change in how people consume content was back in like 2005 when social media first started to take off, right? I think we're in a similar transition now where um, the channels are changing, the behavior is changing. And I, you know, sort of saw an opportunity when the, you know, when there was an opening to start to rethink about the way that our content team approaches that, um, and so that's kind of what led into, you know, this role and and has really been taking up a lot of my time and interest this year.
1: Yeah, what does the day to day look like for a VP of Marketing at HubSpot?
0: Uh so it changes all the time. Um, so today was today was actually a good example, it, kind of a rapid fire day. I had a quiet morning where I got to do a little bit of writing, do a little bit of reading, and then things picked up, right? So I had um, one-on-ones with, with some of my direct reports. Uh, we just finished out a month, so we're sort of looking at those numbers. Uh, at lunchtime, I had a conversation with uh, Darmesh, who's our co-founder, uh, Kip, who's our CMO, um, and then um, Brad and, and Jeremy, who are on our product team, about uh, some of the larger changes we're seeing in, in customer and in uh, consumer behavior. And so how do we position HubSpot for the next generation of those changes? And so like having a conversation like that, which is com- entirely theoretical and conceptual in the middle of a busy day of one-on-ones it- is sort of just the space that you need to kind of step back and and keep your head in the game and kind of plan for the future. Um, and then like, you know, other meetings would be anything from like, you know, recording a podcast episode to, talking to one of our teams about how um, about their next idea for a content strategy uh, we just launched a new product um, so we have like Google AdWords integration in our software now and and so keeping an eye on how that launch was going all those things will go into the the span of a day and you just kind of like, Pick your feet up and ride, and hope that you are able to to make an impact by the end of it.
1: And how, yeah, how do you manage that or navigate that challenge? Of it sounds like you're still able to execute, you know, and 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 write and and do your own work, but also you have a team to manage. You know, you have direct reports. Um, you know, there's there's meetings, there's direction, there's that sort of thing. Do you get to spend as much time as as you would like, like? Uh, you know, just getting your hands dirty, rolling up your sleeves, or, or is that something that's sort of lost once you reach that that level?
0: It's lost if you're not careful um, with it. I think when I first, anytime you first get into a role, there's a sort of a transitional period where you're, you're just trying to get a hold of the, the new role. But I'm, I'm personally in a good place now where I feel like I have a nice mix of, you know, I still write for the blog. I still, um, you know, pay attention to the things going on around us the market and i'm working on like the career paths the people who work on my team and i'm working on recruiting and so you have to be be very very disciplined about finding those days or sorry sorry finding that time in your days to um to have the mix of of thinking and doing and leading and i think that actually um you had neil Pasricha on on this podcast right i did yeah So he talks a little bit about this uh, on sort of in his book, The Happiness Equation, where it's like, you have to make sure that there is a time for intense thought and a time for intense action, and then a time to step back from all of that. And you'll be better as a professional, better as a marketer, better just in general, if you're able to do that. So I I try to work really hard to get that balance. Um, I don't always achieve it. I've got definitely have off days, but by and large, I feel like I'm getting there. And HubSpot helps with that, like little things. So just the fact that there's a flex working schedule. I don't, I don't have kids, but I've got a one-year-old puppy and, um, I can walk home in the middle of the day and take the dog out for a walk and think during that walk and then come back to work refreshed. Uh, so some of the structural stuff that HubSpot does helps with that.
1: Another thing I find really fascinating is in, in really any, you know, software or product company is the relationship between content and product. How does that stay so cohesive at a place like HubSpot? So when there's a new release coming, how, how far in advance does the content team know that they should maybe start shifting some of their ideas and content around, you know, for instance, when you know, HubSpot. You guys launched a free CRM. Was there a concerted effort to blog more about sales and and you know managing your database uh, ahead of a release, or like how how does that whole process and relationship work at HubSpot?
0: Yeah, no, it's an astute question. Um, we definitely there's definitely some priming of the of the content that happens before a launch. The nice thing about a launch is whether it's you know, whether you're on the content team or you're on the product marketing team, at the end of the day, it's about finding the story. And the story for a product launch like the CRM is figuring out, you know, what's the pain point? What's what's wrong with the way that people use the software today that that could change? And so the product marketer does a lot of work to to figure out what is that story? Not the features of the CRM, not, you know, Um, how many bells and whistles it has, but what is the reason that it needs to exist in the world? What's the difference it's going to make in someone's life? And once you have that story, and you can have that as the CRM is being built, as the product's being built, the moment you land on that pain point after talking with customers, that's when you go to the content team and you're like, here's what I'm hearing from customers is their biggest challenge. What content would match this challenge? Uh, So there's a brainstorm that happens pre-launch, where the product marketing team and the content team gets together and sort of maps out the different chapters of that story, and uh, we'll talk about it from a strategic standpoint before the product launches, and then once the product launches, um, we'll talk about it in a little bit more of an overt way.
1: It's it sounds it sounds smooth, but you know, at, at a lot of companies, it it can be very. You know, either the the engineering team or the product team doesn't communicate timelines effectively. So it sounds like you guys have it figured out, right? So um, that probably yeah, makes mean, things a lot easier from a content standpoint.
0: It's not flawless. There are still times when <laughs> features ship when nobody's known about it. Um, we have to we have to do some you know rapid communication. But in general, it's like if you don't have the story while you're building this product, you're, you're sort of missing the boat. You got to know what this thing is going to mean, and the second you know that 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 place like all the speeches and content and, you know, uh, it, it sales enablement tools that come off of that become a lot easier because everybody's reading off the same book.
1: For sure. For sure. Um, and a couple minutes ago, you, you mentioned, you know, uh, writing and, and sort of like the next phase of growth um, for HubSpot. Something that you wrote recently um, called "Decentralized Content: Why Writing Is Moving Away from the Website." It looks like HubSpot's done a lot of offsite content in the past year. So, you know, you launched the Growth Show, which um, you know we were talking before we, we uh, recorded here, and you guys just had somebody from Lego on there. Uh, yeah. So, the Growth Show has has sort of grown into this massive podcast that's a stalwart on, like, you know, the. The top twenty five podcasts on business on iTunes, and then you also have a publication on Medium um, that's you know that I see basically every single day popping up in my feed. So I guess what's the strategy behind these things, um, you know? Because in the past, you would often hear, you know, don't build content in other people's backyard. You know, get right. people back to our domain. It's good for SEO. Like, uh, but you know, you've you've seen companies kind of shift. Away from that a little bit, but you guys have definitely made a concerted effort to kind of, you know, have this content offsite. Um, so I guess, yeah, why? What's why is that there? important? What, what what's changed?
0: Yeah, I think that this is one of the most interesting and exciting shifts that um, I, I geek out of the, over this stuff because I think that uh, we're going to deal with a fundamentally different. Market in in three or five years, in terms of the way that people consume content, where it happens, how they find it, all that stuff. Um, so backing <laughs> backing that back from like a breathless overstatement, um, <laughs> here's here's how I think about this. So we all know that the the majority now of internet traffic happens not on the desktop but on a mobile phone. that we just sort of crossed that threshold over the last couple of years. now, eighty four percent approximately. Of um activity on a mobile phone happens in apps, not on the web. So, and actually it happens in like five apps. It happens, and those five apps kind of differ by audience, but but let's rewind that for a second, right? So if the va- vast majority of online activity is happening on mobile phones, and the vast majority of that activity is happening in apps, what does that mean for SEO? What does that mean for Google? And what will it mean in five years, right? So I think that um, whereas we used to have one playbook of like, let's create a bunch of content on our site, optimize it for search, and then when people go to Google, they'll find our content, and that'll be their front door into our business, right? Uh, that's how things were. I think that's kind of how majority, like mostly how things are today. But I think in the next five years... There's not going to be one SEO playbook. There's going to be a search playbook for web browser. There's going to be a search playbook for apps. There's going to be all sorts of different ways that you can get your content found. And so we're leaning in a little bit to establishing an off-site content strategy because of some of those trends that we're seeing. Now, getting the timing right on all that is is always a big question mark. But where we are right now is through, we're basically like, there's a lot of experimentation happening. Um, I think that uh, when you talk about, you know, uh, offsite content, the way we used to think about social media, and I was just talking to uh, one of our leads on the social media team today, was like, oh, social media is a promotion channel. So we're going to publish something on our site Then we're going to take that link and we're going to push it out through Facebook, Twitter, um, you know, LinkedIn, all the different social media channels. And that has worked, that little two-step of like create and promote has worked really well um, for the last few years. But you're starting to see some changes in those actual social media channels. So Twitter introduced Twitter moments and Facebook introduced instant articles. And each of these channels now, LinkedIn has the Pulse network, each of these channels now are trying to keep more of the, the eye share on on their channel themselves instead of actually passing them through. So these things that we used to rely on as pass-throughs are now kind of cul-de-sacs and and the the attention is staying there. Now you could look at that and get really deflated and be like, well, the game's over. You know, how how are we gonna get people back to our site? Or you could look at that and think, we don't just have one home planet. We have a universe of different satellite planets where we can engage um, prospective customers, existing customers with our brand. And so our play this year in in trying to get, you know, build some audience and build some content offsite is really to, to try to feel that out and see what the potential is there. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, no, it, it's and it's really fascinating too. So how does that change your, like what changes, like on Facebook, on Twitter, you know, they are largely distribution networks now for content. So what you're saying is, you know, and, and you could see this already happening, you know, with Facebook Live was just launched today, you know, Paris, you know, obviously these apps, these channels, they want to keep, like you said, the attention in apps. So how does your approach change? Has HubSpot change their approach at all to engaging in facebook and engaging in twitter has that changed from what it used to be uh you know just a couple years ago
0: yeah i think um you know we're actually so we look to buzzfeed a lot on this one because they have a really interesting structure where they they sort of have they don't create a centralized piece of content and then promote it over a bunch of different channels they actually build the content for that channel. So they have Facebook in mind when they're creating a certain piece of content and they won't share that same content on Twitter necessarily. Um, and so the biggest sea change that we're trying to move through now is what makes something inherently successful on Facebook and how do you build that in from the start? So when we go to record a video that's going to live on Facebook as opposed to our blog, what are the changes that we need to make to reflect the way that people consume that video on that channel? Um, that's one thing. Uh, I think the other thing is sort of a recognition that you're not going to see the same level of uh, pass through as you previously did. So what's our goal then is our goal of social media leads at this point, or is it just velocity of shares or, you know, expansion of, uh, of interactions in the brand, like the goals shift a little bit when you realize that eyes are going to stay on site. Um, so those are a couple of different ways. I think that, you know, you can't treat Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and Medium and YouTube and Snapchat all the same. They've actually, they've matured over the last few years. So you almost need a different strategy for each one of those channels. What works on on LinkedIn is not going to work on Facebook.
1: And I think one of the more interesting ones to me is medium um, mm-hmm. you see a lot of people moving their blogs to medium. I think you know the more that you see people like uh, you know Bill Simmons moving his yeah. you know his whole empire to medium and you're seeing it with other brands it's like whoa this is you know this is this this could be big um, but it's still like a a post that goes on medium on readthink, which is HubSpot's publication. Traditionally we would think, wouldn't that be better served on the HubSpot blog? Like the money is made on HubSpot's website, right? Not on Medium, sure. not off site somewhere. Wouldn't it be beneficial for these articles that Brian Halligan writes, um, or you know, like that you write or Darmet? like wouldn't these be better served on the HubSpot blog where the attention is on the site where they can then convert and, and all these things? Like what's the I guess what's the the strategy there for that?
0: Yeah. I'll tell you how we do it. And it may not be the right way. Um, It's the right way today. It may not be the right way tomorrow either. Uh, So the way that we think about our editorial mix um, is that the content that we put on our blog, that should be canonical, everlasting, compounding content. Content that is really search-friendly. You know, things posts like, what is a CRM? Or, you know, how do I make a pivot chart in Excel, these things that are essential for people to learn marketing, that stuff does really well on our blog. And we want the SEO credit that comes to that. The stuff that we tend to put on Medium tends to be more, um, I hate the term, but tends to be more like thought leadership content, Mm -hmm. where the perspective and the person who is presenting that perspective Matters more than the search value, or um, or sort of having the record of that content on your site. That distinction might be small, but it's really given us some clarity around um, what would fit on Medium versus what would fit on HubSpot. Now, it's not black and white. We still put thought leadership stuff on the HubSpot blog, um, and there are times when we will uh, syndicate content from the HubSpot blog to Medium. Because by the way built into medium syndication is the fact that they'll throw a, um, a no follow tag on their content so that you don't get pinged for duplicate content. Uh, so you don't have to worry about that. Um, but by and large, like when we're thinking about our editorial mix, the stuff on medium is the stuff that we know will be highly shareable, but maybe not necessarily the thing that's going to last and be there six months, a year from now pulling in traffic. And actually, we found on Medium, it's like the total inverse of all blog rules. Um, so on our blog, the magical thing about content is it compounds. So I'm sure you've, Pam might have talked about this, but 70% of our visits on a monthly basis come from content that we didn't create that month. We created it six months ago, a year ago, three years ago, and it's continually bringing in more and more visits, even though it's not fresh. Um, the inverse is true on medium we don 't see a lot of like visits to the stuff we published in January. All of our visits on medium are coming from new um new content that 's gotten its way into the primary news feed so the rules it goes back to understanding the channel like the rules are very different on medium
1: it 's very transient yeah it's uh it's it 's a social network so it's yeah. it 's here right now and it's the next thing is right behind it and i 've also i don 't know if you guys found this but the how-to listicle thing not as big on Medium totally. as it would be like on your own domain. You can get away with being a little more, yeah. I guess I guess the word is like thought leadershipy or or a little more creative in your titles, and that stuff tends to do very well. And it is like the inverse of all of all blog rules. Um, so has it been working for you guys? Like, how do you guys measure the success on Medium?
0: Yeah, uh, another thing that we're talking about all the time is like, are we measuring this in the right way? Uh, So what we're tracking right now are certainly views, um, but then also followers of both the HubSpot handle and of the publication, ReadThink. The thing that we've learned is that you actually nailed it when you said a moment ago that it's it's a uh, social network. Um, So the people actually matter more than the publication. uh, When we publish content, who publishes it and how big their following is has much more of an impact on medium than it ever does on our blog. Like it doesn't matter who publishes on the blog. It's just the quality of the content. There's definitely like a, a social influence that weighs on, um, success on medium.
1: For sure. For sure. And, uh, re- rethink is you guys post everything from, you know, uh, pieces from Brian Halligan on, on HubSpot's growth over the years. To pieces about um, you know Steve Jobs and mm-hmm. and you know the characterizations of, of of genius. So like is that a separate editorial altogether? Um, how does that whole whole process get organized?
0: So the way that we thought about ReadThink was we wanted the content on there to be almost fodder for executives at cocktail parties. Like we wanted somebody to read a post on Readthink and have it be unusual or a, a different perspective enough that it would stick with them and then come up at a networking event or a cocktail party later on as, as a story that they could tell it or an anecdote that they could tell about business and growth. And so there's some like really unique uh, stories on there about like the Swiss cheese mafia is one of my favorite stories on there and it has something to do with HubSpot. It has something really to do with marketing and, um, But it is a really interesting business story. And so that's the type of tone we were trying to strike on Medium now, or on ReadThink in particular. uh, That's also something we're watching. You know, I think you don't really know your editorial mix until you see the numbers come in. And so as we learn what people like on that that publication, we'll probably evolve that a little bit. But that's been our our litmus test so far, Um, pardon the pun, um, is... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> is, is this something that would stick with somebody enough that they would tell this as an anecdote later on?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. And you could definitely tell just from uh, reading through the publication. So what does Rethink mean? Like, wh- where did that title come from?
0: Um, It's so hard to find a good URL these days, John. <laughs> uh, no, really we were... Is. We wanted it to be, it's a little bit on the nose, but we wanted people to read read the content on there and then spend some time thinking about it afterwards. We wanted it to be something that takes someone out of their day as opposed to just being like something they quickly consume in their day. We wanted it to be like this solitary moment of like thought that comes out of reading each post. And maybe that was really aspirational and, and a little bit lofty, but that's kind of where the title came from.
1: Right, and and for everybody listening, definitely check out rethink because it has a ton of interesting content that would appeal to to just about anybody. I mean, uh, not even just you know business oriented people. So definitely check it out. Um, and I have to ask you too about the growth show. Um, sure, you know, yeah. You've been heavily involved in that since HubSpot started it. So you know you guys have had a ton of guests on it. I feel like when it first started, it was very focused on you know the marketing and business and advertising world. People like Seth Godin. You had executives from Slack. Um, you know, all these companies and now it's sort of grown into, now you have, you know, people from Lego, like it's, mm-hmm. it's grown into this, this thing that's like gone beyond just, just business, um, and appeals to a lot more people. So, um, I guess like, yeah, How, who, who has been your favorite, I guess, guest so far really put you on the spot.
0: So no, but that one's really easy for me. Cause it was like, uh, I had, so my favorite guest was this guy, Rick Ridgeway from Patagonia and um only because i left i've talked to really really interesting people as part of this podcast um and they've all you know been really riveting but i left that conversation with rick and i felt different you know like i he has such a a way about him and sort of a philosophy to the way he lives his life that it just completely caught me off guard uh, and there was this kind of magical moment where he had just he had lost a friend, like a really close friend two weeks earlier to a kayaking accident of all things. And, and took the time in that conversation to, to talk about, you know, life after that and how he has sort of gotten back into the flow of things and what's gotten him there. And it just like, it was one of those conversations where you lose, you talked about, you know, with Austin, you lost track of time. I felt like I lost track of myself in that whole conversation. And I, left it feeling very different than I did going in. So, no, like, every guest that we've had has been amazing, but that Patagonia episode was, like, one of the more fascinating conversations I've had in my life.
1: Definitely adding that to the listen list, as should everyone. Um, You know, Patagonia fan, too, aside, but, yeah, that that sounds really interesting. Um, So, you know, you guys, HubSpot as an organization has... I mean, you guys are basically involved in most platforms, right? Snapchat, Instagram, everything, right? So at the scale that you guys are now, and as a company that's obviously still in aggressive growth mode and still looking to continue to grow, how does HubSpot approach doing that? Is it, you know, can you keep scaling, you know, output? Is it more blogs and more places? Is it like added headcount? Is it uh, bigger Mm -hmm. partnerships? Like, what are some of the the big things that you guys are focused on as far as continuing to grow at the pace that you guys have?
0: I think it's finding the opportunity. So certainly as we grow, we're going to add headcount. Um, but I think it's like knowing where that headcount should go is probably the more important decision. So it's not just that every year we should add another blogger to the, to the marketing blog and push out another Five posts a day, or what have you. Like, it's not that kind of one-for-one one growth. I think it's looking at where's the opportunity for the company. So, it, for example, I mean, there's a huge opportunity internationally. Um, you know, Dublin, Sydney, Singapore—they're all growing really fast. Um, our LATAM strategy is growing really fast, and and you could tell it's in early days. You can just feel it. So, I think we'll see a lot of growth there, and knowing to invest there. But I also think. Part of growing is, again, picking your head up and looking at where is the market headed and how is behavior changing and how do we prepare for that. So um, earlier this year, we got together, uh, again, as sort of an exercise, and we were like, all right, a lot of people think about their competition. A lot of people think about like what's going to disrupt this company. Why don't we start to think about what could actually disrupt inbound as an approach to marketing and an approach to sales like what's the thing that is going to make that not as effective anymore right and how do we how do we you know build against that and so that's where things like you know noticing the the movement of of content away from the website came out of that and noticing things like um people not really wanting to fill out forms or or different different versions of what a what a what a conversion is on a website. All those things we started to talk about, and we started to figure out, like, all right, how do we future-proof against these things? How and and by future-proof, what I don't mean is, you know, hope that it's not going to happen and like, you know, run away from it. What I mean is, how do we run straight at that? So we put together a bunch of teams that are um, geared towards each of those larger trends that we're seeing in the market and. You know they're they're cross-functional teams, but they're working on projects that hopefully will help us at least understand those changes better if not capitalize on them. So a uh, long way of saying, I think there's certainly just scale of of headcount and a volume of what we're doing, but I think the the probably the more pertinent point here is knowing where to to target that that growth and to make sure that you're putting it um, at the in places that are, you know, in the best position to be optimized.
1: Well, it seems like HubSpot has always done a really good job of that. I mean, the whole idea was born out of that. So, I would I would think that you guys are, are well positioned. Um, so that's really interesting. So, um, I like to sort of end these things on a, on a on a light note and ask you uh, a few questions that are more. I guess, uh, you know, uh, personal to the things that you enjoy, like reading, because I know you're a big book nerd like me. (laughs) Um, But first I have to start off with this question because, um, you know, people learn about a lot of cool apps this way. And I think there's a lot you can tell about a person by what apps are on their home screen. Mm -hmm. So when you open up your... uh, I'm going to guess you're an iPhone person. I am. Uh, When you open up your phone, like what apps are right there on your home screen that you use all the time?
0: Uh, So I've got... I'll, I'll pull it out here. I've got um, I've got Slack. We're all, we're a Slack company. We use that a lot um, as a way to stay connected with the different offices. And when you're off site, I've got. Um, I am trying to learn Snapchat. I'm not a native <laughs> to it, so I've got like all the people on my team teaching me how to use it. I right now it's just all pictures of my dog. Um, <laughs> I, speaking of my dog, I've got an app called Rover, which helps me find a dog sitter when I've got to go out of town, as I frequently oh, do that's for HubSpot. Cool. Um. I've got, I, I still love Twitter with a passion. Uh, Twitter is like my social network and I defend it to the to my last <laughs> breath. I know people give it a lot of um, I'll just, you know, people give it a lot of shit, but I, I really like Twitter. Uh, so that's probably the one I use the most often. Then I've got the Medium app here. Um, I write for Medium. I read a lot of my content on Medium. Um, so no huge surprises here, but um, uh, the, the one other one that I use a lot is Feedly. Um, I'm still like A lot of people have sort of moved away from the RSS reader, but I like using Feedly as a way to to keep up with the blogs that I learn from.
1: Yeah, and there's like so many of those. There's Flipboard, there's Feedly, then I guess, you know, Pocket's completely different, but it's still about like having all your content in one place. Um, I totally
0: use Pocket. Pocket is where I store things that are so smart that I want to go back and like borrow from that and, and, you know, cite it and pull, pull stats and quotes from it for future writing.
1: So I think something else we learned about you just now is that you're okay leaving your dog with strangers. How does Rover (laughs) work? (laughs) That seems really... So like a stranger just shows up to your house? Or how does that work?
0: It's not quite strangers. You get to meet them first. Um, But (laughs) it's it's people in your neighborhood. It's like on-demand pet service. It's people in your neighborhood that, um, you know, maybe they have dogs themselves. Maybe they're just like, they want a dog and they don't don't have enough time for one yet. Where if you're going out of town for a night, um, you can... You know, interview them really quickly, uh, have them meet your dog, and then book them and pay for that stay um, all out of, out of one app.
1: Interesting. That's a, that's 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 definitely one I'll have to check out. Yeah. Um, and as I mentioned before, I know we've talked about this, so I know you're you're a big reader, you're a big book nerd, as I am. Uh, what what are some of, like the best books that you've read recently?
0: So um, so there's this guy Clive Thompson who wrote this book called Smarter Than You Think that I actually read now. I, I need to find a new favorite book because I read it now almost a year ago, but it's be, it's been a year and I haven't found one that I like better than this. Um, and what Smarter Than You Think is about is there's a lot of like hand wringing and chicken little calling around the um, the fact that technology, like we're all so dependent on technology, right? And it's got to be, it's, it's, we're not talking to each other anymore. We're, you know, not having conversations the same way we used to, we're losing our memory because we go to Google for everything. And it's, there's, for a long time now, been a lot of sort of like negativity around the impact of technology on our lives. And this book, uh, Smarter Than You Think, takes the contrarian point of view, which is that actually any major advancement that we've had from the printing press all the way up to the, you know, the iPhone and, and virtual reality and, and continuing on into the future has come with this kind of panic around what is this doing to our brains? What is it doing to our children? What is it doing to our interpersonal relationships? Um, People thought that when the printing press first came out, that it was going to ruin people's ability to actually tell stories because why would you remember a story if you could just have a book printed? Right. So like uh, (laughs) this kind of like craziness, crazy sort of panic around technology. And, and what he does is he sort of tells throughout history how the opposite's actually been true about how much technology has deepened our ability to think and expanded our skill sets. And, you know, I I tend to be an optimist about this stuff, but in a world that I think is really full of a lot of panic around tech and, you know, communications and all of these channels, um, it was nice to read something that was both really well-written and also kind of took the positive angle on it. So I loved that. He's actually working on another book. I'm excited for it to come out. Um, I'm currently reading a book called The Profiteers, which is about the Bechtel family, family, which is um, a a major construction family that has done everything from the Hoover Dam to the rebuilding of Iraq um, and kind of their, their ties to the government and kind of like how contracts have, have sort of evolved over the last, uh, you know, Forty or fifty decade, uh, fifty years, uh, and that's been interesting for a different reason. But if I were going to recommend one, I think that um, "Smarter Than You Think" is probably my pick.
1: You're making me feel bad now. I have it sitting on my shelf, and I haven't read it. Uh, I think I've had it for probably a year. "Smarter Than You Think." So, oh, it's
0: good. Looks like
1: I gotta, you know, jump that one to the front of the pile. He's uh, actually
0: a good um, essayist too. Like, if you look for his stuff on, I think he writes a lot for. I'm not sure if it's Wired, but if you sort of look for his name, he's written some good essays in general on like the field of technology
1: awesome i knew you wouldn't let me down there i know you'd have some good ones so uh, (laughs) thanks for the recommendations um so yeah this has been a lot of fun and i guess we'll wrap up like where can people connect with you um read some of your stuff like where do you want to where do you want to send people from here
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, So I'm highly Googleable. I'm like (laughs) Googleable. Yeah. uh, I write a lot for the HubSpot blog. So you can certainly find me there. Uh, I just posted a piece uh, this week about Snapchat as if in my adventures of learning Snapchat. Um, And uh, you can find me on Medium. You can definitely find me on Twitter. Those are probably the big three. HubSpot's blog, Medium and Twitter. Just search for Megan Keeney Anderson.
1: Awesome. Megan, thanks so much. for This was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for coming on today. I'm really glad uh, we were finally able to get you on.
0: I loved it. Thanks for all the good content over the last few weeks.
1: Oh, for sure, for sure. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, we'll be seeing you soon.